For those of you who are still doing the exam, you still have 15 minutes to review your answers, inshallah. If I could ask that by quarter to nine, you have pressed the submit button, inshallah. But you have 15 minutes if you want to look over your answers. We'll try not to give too many of them out during the next 15 minutes, inshallah. So I'd like to start by welcoming everyone back. And for the new students, welcoming you to the Essentials Module Number 4. And as you guys know, just to recount for everyone, the Essentials is a modular diploma. That means that it's basically a certificate that is given out based on attending and taking exams for a number of modules. And I believe that there are eight scheduled modules and in each module of 12 weeks, there are three subjects. So inshallah ta'ala, in this module four, we have three subjects. The first one is to complete Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyya, this poem that we have been taking the exam on today. Inshallah, we're gonna complete that poem and we stopped roughly at the, at the bridge between the Makki and the Madani period of the seerah. So again, without giving the answers to the exam away, Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyyah is a short and brief summary of the seerah of the Prophet It's very short and summarized. Now someone might say, well, what is the benefit in studying such a short and summarized seerah? Well, the benefit is that you can remember it. It's very hard for you to, for example, read, let's say, probably the most popular book of the seerah in English is the sealed nectar, al-Rahiq, al-Makhtoum. It's hard to read that and keep all the information in your mind. But when you read a short poem like this, very, very short, the major events of the seerah given in order, it's like you have keys. And those keys open for you doors to more information. And this is not just true in the seerah. This is true for every type of Islamic knowledge that you guys learn. I would highly recommend. Not that you don't study big books, but that you have a set of keys. Those set of keys represent small texts, which are maybe only a few pages in length. But each line opens a door which you can talk about for a whole lecture. So for example, on Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyya, in reality, probably I could give, you know, 50 or whatever lectures on the topic. I need 50 hours worth of teaching. And just take every few lines and just break it down. And every few lines, we can make an entire lecture on it. But what's the point of having the poem? It's all there in your mind. You have the seerah there from beginning to end in a nice order with all of the major events mentioned 
and then you yourself can branch out into those events, read more about them, understand more about them, but you still can go back to that basic information which is there, that basic roadmap. And that really is the best way to learn Islam across the board. It's the best way to learn Islam in fiqh, it's the best way to learn about aqidah, it's the best way, you need every subtopic of Islam. The best way to learn about that subtopic of Islam is to have a very short text that you have pretty much kept in memory and then you use that to branch out into areas that you have knowledge of and expand upon it and, and understand it more. But whenever you need to go back, you still have that roadmap, those basic few basic simple points that you need. I guess it's kind of like memorizing formulas in mathematics. It's like when you take a mathematics exam, you only, I mean, you might answer a hundred questions, but you might only need to memorize 10 formula, for example. Those 10 formula that you have, they're like keys that open up the answers to all of those questions. So the same thing works when you study Islam. You memorize a few short pieces of information and they act like keys to open you the door to lots and lots of information. So one of the things we do struggle with in the essentials and you know, there's no, there's no way around it, just how it is, it's the decree of Allah is that we don't have a lot of time. When we add the exams in there and the revision and things that we do, you know, probably we have six hours worth of teaching in every subject. So six hours to cover the seerah in Makkah, six hours to cover the seerah in Medina. It's not a lot. But inshallah ta'ala, it's just the idea is to give you the ability to go and study further on the topic but to give you something you can come back to and act like a roadmap. So I leave the reminder and the discussion about the poem and the author until next time because of the exam questions. But we will continue inshallah ta'ala and we reached line number 40. Line number 40 is the, that gap between the Makki and the Madani period of the seerah. So generally we know that the Prophet ﷺ, you can divide his life into two parts, you can divide it into three parts if you want. If you divide it into two parts, you would say the time that he stayed in Makkah and the time that he lived in Medina. So the first 53 years of his life he spent in Makkah and the last 10 years of his life in Medina and we spoke last time a little bit about what characterizes the time in Makkah and the time in Medina if you wanted to divide it into three you would probably divide it into pre or pre-prophethood if that makes sense the time before prophethood and the time after prophethood in Makkah, which was 13 years, and the time after prophethood in Medina, which is 10 years. So you could say, you could divide it 40, 13, 10, or you could divide it 53, 10, depending on whether you're looking at the country or you're looking at the situation. Uh, the two are slightly different. 
What characterizes the Makkan period of the seerah? One of the most important things you see is correcting aqidah, correcting people's belief, building their iman, teaching them the basics about who Allah is, what Allah does, establishing the most you know, fundamental, basic kind of link between the servant and his Lord. It's a time of extreme hardship and it's a time where the Muslims are living as a minority. And the rajih, the correct opinion among the scholars of fiqh and aqidah and seerah who deal with this issue, the different scholars deal with it from different angles. The correct opinion is that the events of Makkah are not abrogated. There are some rulings that were abrogated, but as a whole, it's not like Makkah is forgotten. Like, okay, we've, we've, we've got past that now. Makkah is a blueprint of how to live as a Muslim minority. And Medina is a blueprint of how to live in a Muslim country. Now, that doesn't mean that when we go back to England or India or wherever that we ignore everything that was done in Medina and we go back to how the Prophet did things in Mecca and we don't pray five times a day and so on that's not the intended meaning but what I mean by that is the general way that the Prophet dealt with things and the priorities that he had those are still valid they're valid for people living in Countries where Islam is oppressed, where Islam is the minority, where the Muslims are living in a state of suffering and a state of hardship, you have examples of how to live in the Meccan part of the seerah. In the time of Medina, you have examples that relate to living within a Muslim country. You have issues related to the state you know, to the country itself. Things like military expeditions. And as we know, military expeditions are matters of the state. They are matters related to countries. They're not, you know, it's not like yeah, and two of us get out and say we're going to go on a military expedition today and conquer this city or conquer this place. I mean, it's a matter of the state. It's a matter of the country. So the Prophet dealt with affairs of state, what we call affairs of state, and running a country, and all of the things that go along with it, diplomacy, you know, diplomatic relations, military, all of the things that go along with having a state, finances and things like that, you know, the funds of the state, all of these things we find in Medina. Now in terms of the development of Islam, Islam also in terms of its rules and regulations, developed massively between Makkah and Medina. When the Muslims left Makkah, there had only recently been the introduction of five daily prayers. And those five daily prayers were not as we know them today. Rather, this happened in the Medina period where the prayers became you know, four rakah for dhuhr, four rakah for asr, four rakah for isha, and so on. 
We're going to come to that in the poem, inshallah. So, in terms of uh, the pillars of Islam, in Makkah we have the Shahadatan, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. We have this in, in, in Makkah. And we have an, at the beginning of the Salah. The Muslims have started to pray five times a day, but not in the way that we pray five times a day now. And then, in terms of the others, you don't have zakah, you don't have fasting, and you don't have hajj. Even though hajj was something known by the Muslims, and fasting was known also to the Muslims, because these were things that had existed in the previous nations and the people knew about them and charity, obviously giving in charity was known. But the concept of having an Islamic zakah, Islamic fasting, Islamic, like a hajj that is prescribed by Islam, that didn't exist in Makkah. All of these things were introduced in Medina. And that doesn't mean, as we said, it's very important we, we highlight this once again, that doesn't mean that we, depending on where we live, we introduce these, these rulings or acts of worship in Islam. Rather, they are, once Allah Azza wa decreed them, they are decreed forever upon all of the Muslims wherever they live. However, just the way and the manners and the way the Prophet prioritized things in Makkah gives us a good example of how Muslims are required to live when things are not good for them, when they are under oppression, when they're in a difficult situation. So the poet, he said in the 40th line, and this is translated into English, the poem is on the Kelima website in English as well as Arabic, as well as an audio or an audio copy that you can listen to as well. The poet, he said, Rahimahullah ta'ala, فَجَاءَ طَيْبَةَ الرِّضَى يَقِينَا إِذْ كَمَّلَ الثَّلَاثَ وَالْخَمْسِينَ فِي يَوْمِ الْإِثْنَيْنِ وَدَامَ فِيهَا عَشْرَ سِنِينَ كُمَّ لَنَّحْكِيهَا The poet, he said, then he came to Tayba. Tayba is one of the names of Medina. One of the names of Medina. And we know that Medina originally was called Yathrib. And that the Prophet ﷺ changed the name of Yathrib to al Medina Because Yathrib had a negative meaning or a bad meaning. Prophet ﷺ changed the name of Yathrib to al Medina And Medina has many names and from the names of Medina is Tayba. The place of good, the place of purity. So Ar-Rida, the one who Allah is pleased with, and the one who Allah is pleased with is the Prophet ﷺ. He came to Tayba Yaqina, certainly. إِذْ الثَّلَاثَ Having completed 53 years of his age. Now we have to be careful in this poem. The poet mentions lots of numbers. Dates, ages. Be careful that you get them from the right starting point. So he'll say, for example, 53 have gone 
or he might say five have gone or seven have gone or eight have gone be careful what his starting point is so 53 it's obvious that the starting point is the birth of the prophet sallallahu and 53 years since he was born but what if the poet had said he came to Taiba after 13 years then the meaning would be 13 years after prophethood so be careful because he mentioned he switches sometimes he mentions it by birth sometimes by prophethood sometimes by hijrah he switches so for example he's going to start now saying about the first year the first year after the birth no the first year after the hijrah so be careful about the starting point so he said after having completed 53 so that's 40 years prior to prophethood prophet became a prophet at 40 years old and 13 years in makkah making 53 years in total And he stayed in Medina for 10 years. He stayed in Medina sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for 10 years. There is a narration from Anas ibn Malik radiallahu an that the Prophet sallallahu spent 10 years in Makkah and 10 years in Medina. How can we Tirmidhi mentions it in his Shama'il uh, al-Nabi Hadith Sahih How can we understand this? Because this 13 is based on the narration of Ibn Abbas The Prophet was sent at the, and he sent as a prophet at the age of 40 years old He stayed in Makkah 13 years while revelation was coming to him Then he was commanded to make hijrah so he made hijrah for 10 years and he died at the age of 63. It's narrated by Ibn Abbas uh, ta'ala In the narration of Anas, it says 10 and 10. How do we understand this? What we say is that typically in Arabic, it's possible to round numbers or it's common to round numbers to the nearest 10. So it's quite possible to say the Prophet ﷺ died at 60, meaning 63. And he stayed 10 years in Makkah, meaning 13 years in Makkah. And that is not like uncommon in Arabic. So some of the scholars said that the hadith is not, uh, there is no mistake in the hadith, but that Anas is speaking from the point of rounding the numbers, as is quite common in Arabic uh, speech that people will round the number to the nearest whatever, the nearest 10, or if they're talking in hundreds, to the nearest 100. So someone might have lived 95 years and they might say he lived 100 years or something like that. Right? So that might be something you come across uh, when you're studying the seerah. I think there is no doubt that the precise number is 13 years in Makkah and 10 years in Medina. Uh, you may co come across 10 and 10, and that is more from the point of being a general uh, a, or sort of a generalization. The poet then he says, "Akmala fil ula salat al-hadari 
من بعد ما جمع فاسمع خبري. He said, in the first year, the prayer of the resident became complete. In the beginning of Islam, the prayer as we know was uh, made obligatory five times a day in the Isra and the Mi'raj. Before that, there were prayers that we had to pray, but the prayer was not like the five times daily prayer. In Al-Isra and Mi'raj, the prayer became five times a day. But as Aisha radiallahu anha narrated, she said, فُرِضَتِ الصَّلَاةُ رَكَعَتَيْنِ when the prayer was first introduced, it, every prayer was two raka'ah. Now, she doesn't mention maghrib at all in this narration. And Allah knows best, what it seems to me is that maghrib was always three raka'at. But I can't find any specific evidence for that. But Aisha doesn't talk about Maghrib at all in the narration. She says that the prayer was two rak'ah. Then the Prophet made hijrah and it became four. And the traveler's prayer remained as it was. And because Aisha said the traveler's prayer remained as it was, it seems that Maghrib was three rak'at from the beginning. So that would have made Maghrib the longest prayer in the early days of Islam. And then all the prayers that were two became four except for Fajr. So Dhuhr and Asr and Isha went from two to four for the resident. But the traveler remained with the option of praying two. This has a lot of masail uh, and the hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim. There are a lot of issues or a lot of things the scholars take from this hadith. From them is a discussion about whether the traveler is allowed to pray uh, four raka'at if they want to. And we know the well-known opinion of Aisha and Uthman radiallahu anhuma was that if the traveler wishes to pray four, the traveler can pray four. One of the nephews of Aisha came to her and found her praying four raka'at in her safar. And he said to her that, Oh Aisha, what is this? She said, Oh my son, I mean my nephew, I mean, Oh my son, it's not hard for me. It's not hard for me to do. Any meaning if it's that Aisha understood that if you want to pray two, you pray two. If you want to pray four, you pray four. But some of them use the same hadith of Aisha here to say that it's wajib for the musafir to pray two raka'at because they said that the, that the four, the original prayer was two. So they said here, it's not a rukhsa. It's not an allowance. It's not a leniency. Allah is not saying to you, oh, you're traveling. You can just, you know, like, you, you can just, you can have a break and pray two. It's that praying two is the original and praying four is the change. So some of them based on this said, you can't go back and pray and pray uh, four raka'at. And the ikhtilaf between the scholars is on this one is well known. Right? But it's interesting that Aisha herself, 
even though she's the narrator of this hadith, she is the one who used to habitually pray for raka'at when she is traveling. As did Uthman, radiallahu uh, an. And uh, I think this is, Allahu alam, the stronger opinion. And if you wish to pray for raka'at or you have a reason to do so, then do so. Otherwise, the basic principle is that the traveler prays to uh, raka'at for everything except maghrib. Now notice here, there's no discussion of joining the prayers together. And that is because joining the prayers is not related to sefer. This is a, a misunderstanding a lot of people have where for them, joining and shortening are the same thing. But that's not the case. Shortening is specific to traveling. And joining is related to hardship. So when you travel and there is a degree of hardship, you join and shorten. And when you travel but there is no hardship, like you're staying in the city for three, four days and you're just, you know, sitting around, then you shorten and it's preferred not to join. You can join if you wish, but it's preferred not to join. And you may join in your home city when there is hardship. For example, the rain is very heavy or you are ill or something has happened or you have like, you know, you have a flight that is coming and you will not be able to catch the prayer or your flight arrives late and you missed one of the like Maghrib or something and you join it with Isha. But you pray when you're in your home city, you join and pray full. So you join Maghrib and Isha with Maghrib as three and Isha as four. And you join Dhuhr and Asr with Dhuhr as four and Asr as four. This is in your home city. As for when you are traveling, you may shorten and join at any time. But the sunnah is to shorten and join while you're on the road and to only shorten when you reach your destination. And that is why, as an example, in Mina, in Hajj, we shorten, but we don't join the prayers. But while you're on the road traveling towards, for example, Makkah from your home country, you shorten and you combine. You shorten and combine. In any case, just so you understand the reason behind that is based in the seerah. It's based in this hadith of Aisha that the salah originally was two raka'at. Then in the first year of the hijrah, the salah became four raka'at for dhuhr, asr, and isha. And the traveler's prayer was established. <coughs> While we're talking about fiqh, we may as well, I mean, people will probably ask the question about how many days. Uh, in my opinion, there is no set number of days at which you become a traveler. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, all of these opinions very little in the way of Dalil, four days, 10 days, 14 days, 17 days, and very, very little in the way of Dalil. I think the far, by far, the strongest opinion is the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam al-Taymiyyah ta that there is no fixed number of days for traveling, and it depends on the urf of the people and the condition of the people. Meaning, if you are considered to be a traveler, you're a traveler. I might stay 16 days in a place, I'm living out of a suitcase, I'm traveling from hotel to hotel, I don't have a, I'm a traveler, even if it's 16 days. 
I may stay three days in a place, but it's not like I, I, I'm not a traveler in by any means of the term. Yani. Like, so it depends on the situation of the person. And if you wanted to pin me down, I think that yani, the larger opinion, yani the opinion of, for example, the Hanafiya is the stronger of the, the numbers, yani, like the, the longer period, yani, two weeks or whatever it is. Yani. Um, but there is no, yani, from, I can't find any reliable evidence which would limit the tra traveling to a set number of days like four days or seven days or whatever. And Allah knows best. That's not to say there isn't any evidence, but the evidence is not, it doesn't appear to be compelling. It appears that each Sahabi or each Tabi'i spoke about what was the norm among them, their, their, their people, yani. the norm among them. Yani. Like if we used to consider, yeah, for, for us, like four days is traveling and five days is not, then that's what they used to do. And if for them, like 10 days is traveling and 11 days is not, that's what they used to do. But the reality is there isn't a, and you can't take from the seerah a particular number of, a particular number of days. It's very difficult to do that. Then the poet talks about Salatul Jumu'ah. He says, مِن بَعْدِ مَا جَمَّعَ فَاسْمَعْ خَبَرِي after the first Jumu'ah was held, uh, Ibn Kathir, Rahimahullah uh, Ta'ala, he says, when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam left Quba and he was riding upon Al-Qaswa, his female cam she camel, it was the day of Jumu'ah. And the time of Zawal, the time of the sun passing the center of the sky, happened while he was in the place of Bani Salim ibn Auf. So he prayed Jumu'ah with the Muslims there in a valley known as the valley of Ranuna. And this was the first Jumu'ah that the Prophet ﷺ had prayed in Medina and it said it was the first Jumu'ah he had ever prayed. Why? Because the Jumu'ah prayer is a prayer of the resident. And the Jumu'ah is a prayer of the resident and a prayer of the Muslim who is established in a place. So there are, there are sort of three, at least three groups that don't pray Jumu'ah. One is the traveler. And as a side note of benefit, yani if you do pray Jumu'ah as a traveler, you are absolutely prohibited from joining Asr to it. Yani if you are a traveler and you pray Jumu'ah, because you happen to go by the masjid and they are praying Jumu'ah, then you may not pray Asr afterwards. You must pray Asr at its time. You cannot join Jumu'ah to Asr. And the Rajih is if you join Jumu'ah to Asr, the Asr prayer is invalid. Because Jumu'ah is not the prayer of the traveler. When we took the kids to Montenegro, we got some of the parents like texting us that, why are you not praying Jumu'ah with the kids? SubhanAllah. Jumu'ah is not the prayer of the traveler, it is the prayer of the resident. There is no Jumu'ah for the Musafir. If the Musafir wants to pray Jumu'ah, he can pray Jumu'ah. No issues. Musafir wants to pray Jumu'ah, go and pray, no problem. But it does not, it's not an obligation upon the traveler to pray Salatul Jumu'ah. Instead, the traveler prays Dhuhr. 
the traveler prays duha. The second group that don't pray Jumu'ah are those who live in the desert. Yani those who don't live in the towns. And in other words, they don't have a jama'ah. They don't have a, like I'm not talking about a village in the desert. A village in the desert, they pray Jumu'ah in the village because they have a, a fixed abode. But the Bedouin who moves from place to place and he just has his tent or the person who is camping out in the desert, they do not pray Jumu'ah. Because they, in the first place, do not have a place of jama'at. They do not have a group, a community to gather together to pray Jumu'ah with. So the person like the Bedouin who lives and moves from place to place, he doesn't have a fixed abode, he doesn't pray Jumu'ah. The Jumu'ah is for the person who has a fixed abode. Yani the person who is living in a town or a village or a city. And the third group, and this is the one mentioned by the author in the seerah, are the ones who are unable to pray Jumu'ah because they cannot gather the Muslims together in one place. So this was the example in Makkah. Because of the torture of Quraysh, it's not possible for the Prophet ﷺ to gather the Muslims in one place and give them a Jumu'ah khutbah and for them to sit listening in, in safety and security and pray their prayer. It was not possible to do that because of the, the torture of Quraysh and the, the, the situation in Makkah was such that he could not pray Jumu'ah. And when he was going to Medina, he's a traveler. So the first opportunity the Prophet ﷺ got to pray Jumu'ah was uh, in Medina. And it's not clear that the Jumu'ah was revealed before that time. Like Ibn Kathir, that's what Ibn Kathir goes towards, that the Jumu'ah was not possible prior to Medina. I mean, that's the opinion of Ibn Kathir. That the Jumu'ah wasn't possible prior to Medina because it simply was not safe to gather the Muslims to be able to give the khutbah. But it's also not clear that there's any evidence that the Jumu'ah was prescribed before that. In any case, the Prophet ﷺ led the people in Jumu'ah between Quba and between the Masjid and Nabawi. And there is a Masjid there or a masjid roughly in the place, which is known as Masjid al-Jumu'ah, the Masjid of Jumu'ah. Then the author or the poet, poet goes on to talk about the building of the Masjid Quba and the Masjid al-Nabawi. He says, ثُمَّ بَنَى الْمَسْجِدَ فِي قُبَائِ وَمَسْجِدَ الْمَدِينَةِ الْغَرَّائِ He said, then he built the Masjid in Quba. The masjid in Quba is the first masjid to be built in Islam. I.e. the first masjid to be built after the, uh, the, 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 the sending or the prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Other than that, there had been masjid built prior to that. Of course, the masjid al-Haram, the Kaaba, uh, al-masjid al-Aqsa, because we know that Allah Azzawajal said, Subhanallah, the Asra, the Abadi Laylan, from the Masjid Al-Haram, to the Masjid Al-Aqsa, the Barakna Hawlahu, Linuriyahu Min Ayatina, in the beginning of Surah Al-Isra. So the, those masajid were built prior. Uh, of course, by yani, the, the Kaaba, there is a lot of ikhtilaf about who first built the Kaaba. It said the angels first built the Kaaba. It said that Adam first built the Kaaba. It said that Ibrahim first built the Kaaba. And some of the scholars join between them. 
and said the angels mark the spot and Adam was the first one to build a structure and Ibrahim was the first one to build it in a proper way like it is built, uh, like it is built now. And there, there is a lot of disagreement among the scholars about that issue. Right? And the Masjid Al-Aqsa also from Ibrahim uh, So the first masjid to be built in Islam was Masjid Quba. And that's because the Prophet وسلم, when he came to Medina, he first of all stayed in the house of or the area of Amr ibn Auf, which is around about six kilometers or something like that uh, south of Medina. So this area of uh, Amr ibn Auf the Prophet ﷺ stayed in it, and of course now Quba is just considered to be part of Medina. But in those times, Quba was, was a village or a town outside of Medina. And you have not, it's not inside of the, the Haram of Medina. So you would stay outside and then you would go into Medina from Quba. So when the Prophet ﷺ came, the first thing he did is to build a masjid. And this has a lesson in it for all of us about the importance of the masjid in the life of a Muslim. Because the Prophet ﷺ only planned to stay in Quba for you know, a very short period of time. But in that short period of time, he built the masjid. Because having a masjid is fundamental to uh, the Muslim community. And that's why that building a masjid should always be among the highest priority of a, a group of Muslims who are living in an area that doesn't have a masjid one of the highest priorities should always be to build a masjid for that particular uh, community. And Masjid Quba, it has a number of virtues. It is the masjid about which Allah Azza wa Jal said, لَمَسْجِدٌ أُسِّسَ عَلَى التَّقْوَى مِنْ أَوَّلِ يَوْمٍ أَحَقُّ أَنْ تَقُومَ فِيهِ فِيهِ رِجَالٌ يُحِبُّونَ أَنْ يَتَطَهَّرُوا وَاللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُطَّهِّرِينَ In Surah At-Tawbah, I think it's Ayah 108, yes. In Surah At-Tawbah, Allah Azza wa Jal said, a masjid that is built upon taqwa from the first day is more appropriate for you to stand in. In it are men who love to purify themselves and Allah loves the pure. The story or the, behind the revelation of this ayah is that the munafiqun were extremely jealous of Masjid Quba. And they wanted to build a masjid in order to promote their nifaq, their hypocrisy and in order to plan against the Prophet and his companions so they built Masjid al-Diraq the Masjid of the hypocrites in order to plot and plan and scheme against the Muslims and when this happened they asked the Prophet to pray in that Masjid as was the habit that when anyone made a musalla in their house or when anyone built a masjid, they would invite the Prophet ﷺ to come and pray in it out of barakah, and to gain the barakah of that place. So Allah Azza wa Jal revealed, لا تقم فيه أبدا. 
And from this, many of the scholars say that, that this ayah is a fundamental principle in praying in a masjid that was not built upon tawheed. And if there is a masjid that was established for the purpose of worshipping a grave or worshipping a dead person or something like that, it is haram to pray any salah in there even if you are not praying behind their imam. Based on the ayah, لا تقوم فيه أبدا Do not stand in it ever. This is an evidence that if you have a masjid and that masjid is built upon shirk. And I'm not talking about a masjid that was built upon tawheed and changed over. Yani a masjid, like for example, it was built upon tawheed and then somebody yani took it over and they started doing funny things in it. But a masjid that was built from the first day for the worship of other than Allah. This masjid is not permissible to pray a prayer in it. Even if you pray on your own. Because of the statement of Allah, لا تقوم فيه أبدا Do not stand in it ever. And the masjid that the Prophet ﷺ was commanded to go and stand in was Masjid Quba. A masjid built upon taqwa from the first day. And from the virtues of Masjid Quba is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. مَنْ تَطَحَّرَ فِي بَيْتِهِ ثُمَّ أَتَى مَسْجِدَ Quba. The Prophet's hadith in which he said, Whoever purifies himself in his house, then he goes out to Masjid Quba and prays two rak'ah, he gets the reward of Umrah. And the Prophet habitually used to do that on a Saturday. So he used to visit Masjid Quba on a regular on a regular basis. Uh, and he built the Masjid al-Nabawi, salawatullahi wa salamu He bought the land of the Masjid al-Nabawi. It belonged to two orphans called Sahel and Suhail. And uh, they were in the care of As'ad ibn Zurara, radiallahu an. The Prophet ﷺ was riding his camel. And when they used to, obviously everyone wanted the Prophet ﷺ to stay with them. So they would take the rein of the camel to bring the camel to them. The Prophet ﷺ said, Leave this camel because this camel is, is following the command of Allah. Where it stops, I will stop. And the camel came to this land and sat down. And the Prophet ﷺ asked, to whom does the land belong? And it belonged to two orphan boys called Sahel and Suhail. And the Prophet ﷺ purchased the land from them and he built the masjid and Nabawi uh, and he assisted in the building of it. And he himself carried the bricks and, and helped to build the masjid. And they used to say when they were building the masjid, Allahumma inna al-ajra ajru al-akhirah farham al-ansara wal-muhajirah O Allah, the reward is the reward of the akhirah. So have mercy upon the Ansar and the Muhajireen. We stop there, inshallah ta'ala, uh, because usually we try to stop just around about 9 o'clock, inshallah. We were a little bit late starting today, so a little bit late finishing, so a little bit mixed up. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we uh, continue. First of all, you should have all submitted your exam results. Please make sure you did press the submit button. The results are timed, so if 
you pr submit the button too late, the exam result doesn't count. So it's important that you make sure you did press the submit button and the exam got submitted. This evening, normally we would have Friday night reflections whereby we would uh, meet in Kalima Villa and we would have uh, some topics and discussion. But we have a visitor to Dubai today, Sheikh uh, Dr. Tahir Waif, Hafizahullah. Uh, he's one of the teachers. He's the only English teacher in the Masjid al-Nabawi. Uh, and he has come uh, today to be able to teach uh, us. And I believe it's going to take place in uh, the yeah, in Khawanij, in the Multaqa in Khawanij, the family gathering uh, place in Khawanij. So please do attend. For that reason, I'm canceling the class. Specifically so that you can attend. And I know the people who usually come to my class, and inshallah I will come this evening and see how many of them are there. So the reason we are canceling the class is specifically so that you can attend that class. Inshallah. Uh, so we hope that you'll all, uh, you'll all attend, inshallah. With regard to um, exam results and stuff like that, hopefully everything is more or less done now and everyone has their thing. Uh, with regard to the poem, I have 12 people who have asked to recite the poem. Uh, we asked you last term to memorize it. And 12 people have offered that they want to read it and, and see if they've memorized it. So I believe they're going to be meeting us. Uh, they have time slots. And it will be in the Kalima Villa, inshallah. Uh, if you don't know where the Kalima Villa is, you just go to kalima.org forward slash map, M-A-P, and it will tell you where the new Kalima Villa is. Uh, and I believe Abdullah has some uh, announcements to make. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, we have uh, exciting news uh, for the brothers here. Inshallah, we are uh, conducting a seminar on the 9th of February on the topic of establishing an Islamic household with uh, Ustad Talib Alexander. He's from the UK. So this is a one-day seminar for the, for the entire family. Uh, we've not officially announced it. We'll be announcing it today, later during the day. But if the brothers here would like to register, you will have to visit www.kalima.org forward slash Islamic hyphen household. I repeat, kalima.org uh, forward slash Islamic hyphen household. So you can find all the details about the seminar. And if you're interested, you can register now and also do the payment outside the masjid. Uh, if you have any queries, you can come to me or to any of the Kalima brothers. Barakallahu feekum. Jazakumullah khair.